Good evening and welcome everyone, those of you that are on the phone, those of you that are on the internet, and those that may be listening to this at some time in the future by recording. Uh, we're continuing in this series that we've entitled Reasons to Believe. We've now come to part four in our outline, and again, you can access both uh, previously recorded messages and the notes for each part at our church website. That's new-life-ministries.org. And just follow the prompts there to the audio uh, messages. Um, we started part four last week, and this is an extremely part, uh, extremely important part of our whole study because we're now looking at the inspiration of the scriptures. <clears throat> we took several weeks looking at the authenticity of both the Old and New Testaments, and there's overwhelming proof and evidence that these are documents, historical documents, that have been accurately preserved for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Old Testament that we read is essentially the same Old Testament that Jesus and the Jews of his day would have read and referred to as the Scriptures. And the New Testament that we read is very similar to many, many different handwritten manuscripts that have been preserved even since the first century A.D. But there's a, there's a larger question that we've begun to answer. We need to go beyond just seeing that the Bible is reliably preserved for us, that it's authentic. The question that always arises, how do you know your book, and by the way, that's what Bible means. In Greek, biblos means book. <clears throat> How do you know your book, the Bible, is God's Word? Maybe some other religious writings are also from God, and they're going to take us to the same God and to the same heaven, so many paths lead to the same God. Well, we've been seeing throughout that time and time again, God himself claims in the Bible that not only is he the one and only true God, but this is the only revelation that he's given to us in writing. And we saw last week that the 66 books of the Bible were written over a period of almost 2,000 years by 40 different authors. And some of these authors were uneducated fishermen, a few of them were kings, a few of them were priests. You have a physician thrown in there. Uh, you have shepherds. You have government officials. You have at least one Pharisee. You have army commanders, scribes, butlers, tax collectors. And yet, all of these different authors who contributed to this one book when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it reads like one complete book. 
it reads as if it has one author. And that, of course, is one of many evidences that it was actually inspired by God. And he used different authors to put into writing his word. But the question we really are looking at again tonight, is the Holy Bible, the 66 books that make up our Bible, is it divinely inspired? Is it God's word to all of mankind? In other words, is it authoritative? Or is it just a nice book of poetry and stories and we can read it when we feel like it and put it back on the shelf when we don't want to and it really doesn't have any authority over my life? And we saw last time that the Old Testament alone, over 2,600 times, in the Old Testament scriptures, it claims to be divinely inspired. And we saw numerous occasions where the prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel would say, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then it's in quotation marks as if they were taking dictation from God himself. So, Repeatedly, the writers of the Old Testament claimed that what they were writing down were not their own words. These were not just thoughts that they got inspired with. We use that word inspired in a different way in our modern English, but when we're talking about inspiration, the word literally means inbreathed. God was breathing into these men his very word, and then they were writing it down. And when we come to the New Testament, we saw the same thing. Paul claimed time and again that what he was teaching and what he was writing down for the churches, he didn't learn it in Bible school. It didn't come to him from man. It came as a direct revelation from God. And he was just... Um, an instrument that God was using to write down, to record those words from God. And we left off last time after looking at Paul and Peter. We want to continue tonight with John, the apostle. He wrote, of course, the Gospel of John. There are three epistles that bear his name. And then the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was written by John. And we want to look especially in the book of Revelation to see how time and again John claims that he was not just writing a, a storybook or a book of poetry or allegories or whatever. He repeatedly states that he was actually taking dictation and writing down the very Word of God as God was revealing it to him. And we want to begin tonight in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation 1, 1. And we'll read down to verse 3. Revelation 1, 1 to 1, 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ 
which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, pay close attention to this, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, either John was deluded and feeling very self-important, to say the least, to be writing a book and saying, anybody that reads my book, man, you're going to get blessed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, the book I'm writing is the Word of God. I am just writing down what has been revealed to me, and I'm testifying to everything that I've seen, everything I've heard, and blessed is he who reads the Word of God, the words of this prophecy. So, in the opening verses of Revelation, John leaves no doubt in our minds that the book of Revelation is the Word of God. This is God's Word. This is a book of prophecy that came from heaven through John to you and to me. And if you read through the whole book of Revelation, I count 14 different times that John was commanded by God to write down what he was seeing or what was being dictated to him. And I'll give you one example in Revelation 21, verse 5. Revelation 21 and verse 5. John says, Then he who sat on the throne said, and he's quoting, Behold, I make all things new. End of quote. And he, the one on the throne, said to me, and he's quoting again, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, not everybody can make claims like this that A, they have heard the voice of God, and B, God commanded them to take dictation of everything he was saying. This was John's experience. Fourteen different times God tells him, write this down, write this down. And it, of course, is the Word of God. Then we come to the very last chapter of Revelation, and John closes this whole book, and thus the whole New Testament, with a bold declaration and a very strong warning, because these were not his words. These were God's divinely inspired words, God's prophecy. And Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read it from the New King James Version because I just like 
the way it reads a little better. From verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, again he confirms, this is prophetic, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, you and I may write a good book or two, but I don't think we could dare make a claim like this. If you add anything to my book, or if there's anything in my book that you don't like, and you take it out, you're going to lose your salvation, and your name will be stricken from the book of life. Nothing of the sort. So this is a, a very strong declaration on John's part that every word he was writing down in Revelation is indeed God's word, and God backs up that word with his authority. And this was really God's warning, not John's warning. So both Paul, Peter, and John, we could look at others, but I think looking at those three writers who make up most of the New Testament, with the exception of the Gospels, they made these bold claims that what they were writing down were not their own thoughts, not their own ideas, not their own inspirations, but words that God breathed into them and they recorded for you and me to be able to read almost 2,000 years later. Now, I want us now to look at some portions of the New Testament where it quotes, often verbatim, it quotes from the Old Testament. So now we're going from the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament, and seeing instances where the New Testament confirms that the Old Testament scriptures were fully inspired. They were the authoritative Word of God. And the Jews of Jesus' day, we've already talked about this, they recognized that from Genesis all the way through to the prophets ending with Malachi, these were divine, inspired words. And as we've already noted, there are over 320 direct, verbatim quotations of Old Testament passages found in the New Testament, and about a thousand other clear and definite references to various portions of the Old Testament. And whenever Christ or one of the New Testament writers was referring to the Old Testament, they referred to it as the Scripture. And you actually find, I counted 34 times in the New Testament, where either Jesus or one of the other writers of the New Testament, when they were referring to some portion of the Old Testament, they simply referred to as the Scripture. The Scripture. 
and um, I can give you a number of references. They're all included in the notes. Suffice it to say, numerous times, both in Jesus' teaching and preaching and in the writings of the New Testament, this term was clearly understood by all of the readers in the first century when they heard the word scripture. This wasn't referring to any other writings but the writings of the Old Testament. And you may remember before we started this series, I did another couple of Bible studies on foundations, important foundations that we learn about in the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis. And we talked about how these foundations are under attack in our culture today. And it's, it's amazing to me how more and more the first 11 chapters of Genesis are so important, so foundational to our whole Christian life. And yet, it's sad to find out that in many, many churches and even in many seminaries now, they don't believe Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are literal. They don't believe in a literal six-day creation. Many theologians don't even believe in an actual worldwide flood and a man named Noah who built an ark and saved his family from the flood. Very few even take literally the story of the Tower of Babel and how uh, languages were confused and people groups were scattered all over the face of the earth. Um, without going into a lot of detail, I found it very interesting to note that as this portion of the Bible is under such severe attack, there are over 100 quotations or references to the first 11 chapters of Genesis in the New Testament. And, by the way, each one of those 11 chapters of Genesis is referred to in the New Testament. And we looked at a couple of cases um, last week or the week before. Jesus uh confirmed without any doubt the account of creation, the account of Adam and Eve, uh, a worldwide flood, the person of Noah, the building of an ark to save people from the flood. All of those things are confirmed time and again in the New Testament. So make no mistake, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are to be believed and taken literally, their accounts given to us by God of things that actually happened. These are real historical events, and they're confirmed for us in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, and Jude, and even the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, they all refer to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And no wonder in Romans 15, verse 4, 
Paul writes the following, Romans 15, verse 4. And here's one of these examples where he's referring to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So from Genesis 1-1 onwards, it's all important, it's all there for us to read, to believe, and to understand that it came directly from God to us. It's all the Word of God. Now, let's look at a different angle. Let's look now again at the New Testament, but not what the New Testament has to say about the Old Testament, but what does the New Testament say about its own inspiration? In other words, do the New Testament writers affirm that these are God's words? We, we saw that already in the case of John, but I want to go even a little further and show you how the New Testament writers refer to various portions of the New Testament as the Scripture. And remember, that term was not used loosely in the first century. Everybody understood what Scripture meant. And certainly Paul, a Pharisee and a theologian, he would not have used that word lightly. Scripture means divinely authoritatively inspired by God. Well, look at another passage in Paul's writing. This is found in 1 Timothy. This is a fascinating verse. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. 1 Timothy 5:18. He says for the Scripture says. And then he gives two quotations. And not to be redundant, but Paul would not have used that word Scripture lightly. This was a very powerful word to Paul. And for him to use it, he can be meaning only one thing. The Scripture is God's written word. Well, Let's follow what he's saying. For the scripture says, quote, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. End quote. And, quote, The worker deserves his wages. End quote. So he's actually quoting from two different portions of the scripture, and together... He's calling them the Scripture. Well, what fascinates me about this is the first quote is from the Old Testament. The second quote is from the New Testament. And he puts the two quotes together and refers to them as the Scripture. The first quote is actually a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and verse 4. 
and it reads, just as he quoted it, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Okay, so he got that quote right. His second quote was, The worker deserves his wages. Well, you're not going to find that in the Old Testament. You're going to find that in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The very words of Christ. Luke 10 and verse 7. Jesus says, Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you. And here's the quote. For the worker deserves his wages. The worker deserves his wages. So, by the time Paul is writing to Timothy, some portions of the New Testament, and certainly the Gospels, were now being circulated amongst the churches and the believers, and they were already referring to these writings as the Scripture. Let's look at another instance of this. In Second Peter chapter three and verse two. Second Peter three verse two. And Peter writes, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. That would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, the Old Testament. Scriptures. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, Peter here, in a different way, he also ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together, and he says they're all divinely inspired, they're divinely authoritative. So, just as you would read Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, so read the command given by our Lord and Savior, how? Through the apostles, through Paul, through Peter, through John. So, the writings of the apostles are put on the same level with the writings of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Look also at a very important verse in Hebrews chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Remember, Hebrews is one of those um, 11 books, I guess, out of the 66, that we're not sure who the author was. There's been a lot of speculation about who wrote Hebrews, but bottom line is we don't know for sure. Whoever it was, they sure knew the scriptures. And they knew the history of Israel very, very well. And here's how the writing begins. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So this is another example of how a New Testament writer ties the Old Testament writings of the prophets that were given to the forefathers with new revelation that came through Jesus Christ and was passed along to us through the apostles. Now, one last angle we want to look at in the New Testament is several places where New Testament writers refer to other parts of the New Testament. Now, we saw that already in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul quotes the words of Jesus and refers to those words as the Scripture. But uh, coming back to 2 Peter, this one I find very interesting. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 15 to 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. So Peter was quite aware that a number of letters had been written by Paul and were being circulated to the churches and amongst the different believers. But notice what he says in the next part of verse 16. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Again, Peter, being a Jew, he would not use this word scriptures loosely or lightly. It was a very powerful word for him. And when he refers to the scriptures, he's referring to divinely inspired writings. But he's not talking about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. He's talking about Paul's letters. Let me take you through this again. His letters, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Paul had a lot of enemies, and people were trying to distort some of the things that he was writing about. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. That word other is key here. As they do other scriptures. It very clearly implies, without any doubt, that Peter 
is saying these letters of Paul are scripture. They're not just nice letters that he's writing to people or to churches. These are now considered by the churches to be the scriptures. And for a Jew, and remember, this was first century, and many of the readers of these epistles would have been Jewish, uh, that word conjured up only one thing. It meant divinely inspired writings, God's word. So this is another case where a New Testament writer refers to one of the other New Testament writers and says his writings are scripture. Let me show you one other instance where one New Testament writer is quoting from another New Testament writer. And this is found in the book of Jude. And actually, we'll find that Jude is quoting from Peter. Quoting as if he's quoting from the Bible. Quoting from the Word of God. Jude only has one chapter. And in verses 17 and 18, he writes... But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, quote, he's now quoting, In the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. You may recognize that quotation is from Second Peter chapter 3. And we don't need to go there, but it's a direct quote from Peter's epistle as if it were the divinely inspired word of the Lord. Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Now, I want to go into a rather lengthy section here, and I hope we can finish it tonight, but I'm not promising. Um, many, many times we're going to find in Jesus' teaching and preaching his testimony about the Bible, about the Scriptures, that they are divinely inspired they carry tremendous weight and authority. The scripture cannot be broken, we saw. Heaven and earth will pass away before even one jot or tittle, one punctuation mark can be changed in the word of God. And he repeatedly affirmed the authority of scripture. And... We've looked at it several times, but it's good to look at it again. John chapter 10, verse 35. This is where Jesus says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. Also, 
Go to Luke chapter 16 and verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And probably the clearest one of all is found in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. Jesus is in one of his many discussions, confrontations with the religious Pharisees, and he's, they knew Moses, they knew the scriptures, and here's what he says, John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And one of the studies we're going to do in the future, I've been working on and getting extremely excited, is going through the four Gospels and writing down all of the different claims Jesus made about himself. And when you look at these claims, there's no way you can believe this common myth that many people try to propose. Well, we don't believe Jesus was a savior. We don't believe he was God, but we'll accept that he was a great teacher. Uh, he was a good man. And maybe even he died for a good cause. You can't believe that when you look at the claims Jesus made. Boldly claiming time and time again that he is God, he is the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the only way to get to God, and this is yet one more of these amazing claims. If you believe Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote about me. That must have really shaken him up. Moses wrote about Jesus? Yes, he did. But since you do not believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Notice, Jesus is putting his words on the same level of authority with Moses' words with the scripture. Now, time and again, Jesus indirectly promised, and especially whenever he spoke about the coming Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he promised that there would be a New Testament, that all of his words, all of his teachings would not only be remembered but they would be recorded and passed on through the apostles to the ends of the earth. And remember, and we don't need to look at this one again, but in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You have to think about that. They didn't have computers. They didn't have printing presses. 
They didn't have tape recorders. They had only one way of recording and preserving a person's words. They had to be written down by hand, and if you wanted more than one copy, it had to be hand copied. You didn't run to Staples and get a Xerox. No such animal. There were scribes that worked full-time, around the clock, hand-copying any books, any important information. This is an amazing claim when you think about it. No microphones, no tape recorders, no means of preserving his words, but one. And yet Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words are going to be preserved. My words will never pass away. And really, I know it happens to all of us. We get kind of bored sometimes doing our Bible reading. We nod and daydream and fall asleep reading the Bible. But when you think about the amazing miracles that all had to come together, even to preserve all of these words for you and me to be able to read them, it's nothing short of a whole series of miracles. And Jesus was not only making a bold prediction here, but he's actually saying something miraculous is going to happen. All of my words are going to be preserved. So in an indirect way, he was already predicting the writing of the New Testament, that his words would indeed be written down and kept, preserved, taken to the ends of the earth, and preserved for all future generations. Now, in the Gospel of John, he makes a number of predictions about sending the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit would do when he indeed came. I want to look at just two of those. First one is in John 14 and verse 26. John 14, 26. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. And he says this, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, you know I'm going to do this. What does all mean? What does everything mean? This is a bold statement. Holy Spirit is going to remind you, bring back to your memory, everything I ever said to you. Why? So that they could write it down. So that they could record every word of Christ. John chapter 16. He continues talking about the Holy Spirit here. John 16, verses 12 and 13. He tells the disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
so they hadn't even heard it all yet. I have much more to say, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in taking the words of Jesus, bringing them back to the remembrance of the apostles, and assuring that when they wrote down his words, they would be accurately preserved. This was a supernatural event. They were supernaturally inspired by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was going to make sure every word was accurately preserved. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And of course, all of these bold predictions and promises were indeed fulfilled. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. The apostles were filled with the Spirit. He sent them out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And he guided those apostles by bringing back to their remembrance all of the things of Christ, all of the teachings, all of the parables, all of the words that Jesus had spoken. The Holy Spirit was there now to guide them into all truth, and to even show them future things, things to come, and through the writings that resulted from those apostles, we are guaranteed that what we now read in the New Testament is not only accurate, but it's divinely inspired. And when the last book of the New Testament was written, we read another portion there earlier tonight in Revelation chapter 22, when that final book was added, the the last book of the New Testament, the scriptures were now complete. By no coincidence, Jesus says the following, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. And this is a quotation And in my Bible, it's in red, meaning this is the very word of Christ. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. So Jesus gives his seal of approval to not only the entire book of Revelation, but now the entire New Testament. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And I want to begin looking at this tonight. We may need to complete this next time. We'll see how the time goes. On numerous occasions, Jesus claimed that the words he was speaking, they were not his own words. These were God the Father's words that he was speaking. So, the words of Christ are not his own words, 
They are the words of God. And he repeatedly made this, this declaration and this claim, lest there be any confusion about the origin of these words. These words came from the Father. Look, for instance, in John 7. John chapter 7, verses 16 to 18. And this is in response to a question that the Jews asked in the previous verse. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? <laughs> Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So, Jesus unequivocally states, my teaching came from above. The things I'm saying to you, they didn't spring from my own intellect. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the Father who sent me. Look also, while we're here in John, in the next chapter, John chapter 8, and starting with verse 31, John 8, 31 to 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's a bold claim. My teaching is truth. And the test of whether or not it's truth is what it does to your life. Truth will liberate. Truth will set you free. So he again is stating that everything he was teaching, everything he was saying was truth. A little further here in John 8, Things get rather heated in his discussion back and forth with the Pharisees. And from verse 47, John 8, 47, he says, He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. That's a powerful message right there. I don't have time to touch it. He who belongs to God can hear God. The reason you can't hear is you don't belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan 
and demon-possessed. This amazes me every time I read it. Calling the Son of God demon-possessed. Verse 49. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Follow carefully this next statement. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Well, we're going to answer that question in a few weeks. Not just, who do you think you are? Who do you claim to be? And who did you prove yourself to be? But in their arrogance, they're not only calling him demon-possessed, but they're challenging him, who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus was very clear here. Number one, I am. I am that I am the living God talking to you right now. And my words are God's words. There's no difference. Because every word that I speak, they are words that the Father gave me. I speak to you the word of God. And probably the clearest declaration of all comes in the next instance. All these are found in the Gospel of John. John 12, from verse 47 to 50. John 12, 47 to 50. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world 
to judge, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Follow this. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. Not only is Jesus saying, my word is God's word, it has full authority to judge you. The very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and even how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now, making this plain and simple, Jesus is claiming time and time again, every word that comes out of my mouth is the word of God. So whatever words Jesus spoke, and were recorded in the Gospels, brought back to the memory of the Apostles through the Holy Spirit, every word is God's Word. One last reference here in John 17. John chapter 17, and... If you're familiar with this chapter, this is actually a prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father just before going to the cross. And in his prayer, there are some amazing revelations and some amazing claims. And we will come back to this chapter again when we look at the claims of Christ. But just notice what he says, for instance, in verse 6. Of course, he's praying to the Father, and here's what he says. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed, what? Your word. They have obeyed the word of God. Well, how did they hear the word of God? They heard Jesus' words. They have obeyed your word. Now, verse 7, They know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And drop down to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Here again, the word of Jesus is the word of God, and God's words are the words of Christ. Completely and totally interchangeable because Jesus never spoke anything of his own initiative. 
or of his own thinking. He was divinely inspired by God. I think we'll end there tonight, and I have one more section uh, to complete this, and I don't want to be in a hurry, so I think we'll finish this and complete it next time, and then hopefully move on to another part in our study. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, I thank you that you've given us full confidence and full assurance that when we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we are reading the very words of God, divinely inspired, with divine power, with divine authority. And Lord, we can't even comprehend all of the miracles that made it possible for us to have this book we call the Holy Bible. It's amazing how you have put together the writings of so many different authors over such a long span of time, and yet every word is your word. Father, we thank you and praise you tonight for your word. Your word is forever settled in heaven. Heaven and earth will pass away before any of your word can be broken, changed, or altered. Your words will never pass away. Father, we thank you for the eternal word of God. Help us as we read the Bible to receive revelation through your Holy Spirit, enlightenment and understanding in the Scriptures, and to see that they are indeed your words speaking to us. God bless all those that are participating in this Bible study tonight. Strengthen our faith. Encourage us to know that we can believe every verse, every chapter, every book of the Bible. It's all inspired by God. We give you thanks and praise for your word in Jesus' holy name.